You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The NFL just doesn't ever give us a break. We were midway through the show last night trying to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. When the NFL Kool-Aid manned right through the wall again with the Bruce Arians stepping down news, Todd Bowles now the head coach for the Tampa Bay Bucks, and the takes have been coming fast and furious since last night about just what role Tom Brady might have played in everything going on in Tampa Bay. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. And Courtney, I am glad you're in because we need some straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless, about this whole thing. I did debatable today, and I started the show very firmly believing that Tom Brady did not retire in order to put pressure on Tampa Bay, knowing full well he would come back if Arian stepped down. And by the end of the show, Pablo and Izzy had conspiracy theoried me into being like, well, maybe. Are you going to talk me off the ledge here? Yes, I think that it's fair that there might be some sort of correlation here, but I'm not really ready to buy into that just yet. I know... The takes were flying yesterday that Tom Brady forced Bruce Arians into retirement, and we know it's not retirement. He's going into a role in the front office where he's going to help with draft strategy and evaluating players and, you know, moving out of the the coaching responsibilities. But I don't think that the two correlate. And, yes, there have been reports that coach and player didn't see eye-to-eye at points last season. And, of course, that's going to happen in a competitive football environment where jobs are on the line, there's games to be won, you have one of the most competitive people of all time in Tom Brady looking for another Super Bowl ring. It's probably not going to be the nicest of conversations every (laughs) single day inside of the facility. But do I think that Tom Brady ended up forcing Bruce Arians into retirement? No, I don't. And I think that we would have found out about this if there really truly was a rift far sooner than when Bruce Arians decides to retire officially on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday night, considering we had heard rumblings of this dating back to last season. And now it just comes out that it's coming to fruition. And I am surprised that they did keep it as quiet as they did. Cause apparently Bruce Arians told Todd Bowles of his plans to retire and then to have him be promoted to head coach on Monday. I'm surprised we didn't find out with the Kool-Aid man crashing through the brick wall (laughs) far sooner than yesterday night in the middle of your show. Yeah, it, it feels as though Bruce was determined to give that scoop to Peter King because he was the one who broke a full article, including comments and quotes from him before even the Bucks put out the statement. So that seemed to be a choice that Arians had made. Defensive coordinator Todd Bowles will take over as the head coach. Uh, there certainly seems to be a valid reason for the timing on all this. As Arians said, he didn't want to step down have a likelihood of his staff all being fired, which usually happens when there's a regime change, go through all the uh, interviews only for them to potentially select Todd Bowles anyway. If they knew he would be the successor, they sort of avoided the Rooney rule. Now, of course, Todd Bowles fulfills that hiring, but a team is still required to interview in person two minority candidates for that rule before they're allowed to complete the process. And they skipped over that by this being during the season instead of the offseason. The NFL would have had to set new precedent allowing interviews interviews for a job right now um, if they were to start over the process instead of just handing the reins over. I I think one interesting fact here, Courtney, is if Tom Brady threatened to retire, told the team he would only come back if Arians was out, would Bruce Arians just go along with his entire thing, tell everyone there was no problem, tell everyone he wanted to leave, and then go work at the front office, look at every day at the guy who just cuckolded him? It just doesn't seem likely. 
No, I mean, Bruce Arians isn't really one to bow down to anyone. Right. I mean, listen to the way he talks. I mean, half of the sound bites that we air on the show, we have to bleep out because he's that <laughs> honest and you can appreciate that. I, I feel like he would have ended up trying to stick it to Tom Brady and stick it to the organization if those were the conditions under which Brady would want to come back. I can't buy that. I mean, it does sound like a great conspiracy in theory, but how realistic does that actually sound when you say it out loud? I mean, there are not many coaches whose egos would allow them to even consider do, doing something like that. Mm-hmm. He would just retire. I mean, the guy has won multiple Super Bowls. He has nothing else to prove. He's 69 years old. There is plenty left for him to go enjoy about this life that's not football related if those were indeed the conditions and if Tom, if the, if the organization was going to pick Tom Brady, so to speak, over the head coach. I just can't get into that. It's Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz. Let's hear from Bruce Arians, former Bucks head coach, now in the front office there. He talked about the speculation that friction with Brady might have something to do with this. Get your ass on the golf course, man. I'm getting broke. Uh, no, we have a great relationship. I mean, uh, all the players who are, there are a few in here, every one of them's gotten cussed out, uh, including him. So that's just part of me, you know? So uh, that, there's nothing new, but we have a great relationship. I mean, as soon as he retired, I think we text every week. Hey, where are you at? What are you doing? When are you going to play golf? Uh, when are you getting back down this way? And uh, so <laughs> people got it right. I mean, and uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. I think it's worth noting that in addition to all of the machinations the team would have to put together in order to acquiesce to Brady's demands, demand that Arian step down or at least move to the front office, tell him to make these statements and then say this, make it this timing, etc. You also would need, you know, Todd Bowles and everybody else to play along. And there is an element, of course, Todd Bowles wants this position. But if it looks like he got it due to some manipulations instead of everybody agreeing that he deserves and, and is the person in line for the job, that's an affront to him as well. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't have sat right with anyone. And this is somebody who was a candidate for two head coaching jobs earlier this cycle. He interviewed in Minnesota. He interviewed in Chicago and didn't get either job. So you knew it was only a matter of time for someone like Todd Bowles who, you know, he didn't have a quarterback in New York when he was the Jets head coach. And we knew that he would get another opportunity. It just happened to be at a timing that no one expected here. And I don't even know if like, if he would have been in on this or if like he would have gotten word of this, would you have wanted that job? I mean, yeah, I understand as a minority head coach, there are probably moments where you feel like you have to take any job available to you just because of the, the barriers. A lot of minority coaches have had to getting into these positions and keeping these positions. But Todd Bowles has already been a head coach for, you know, there'd almost be that emasculating sense of here's all these things that happened in order for you to get this job. Now take it and smile. I don't feel like we'd end up seeing that happen because it just there, there's something about that, too, for someone of such integrity and who's you know been lauded um, by not only by Bruce Arians, by others on staff and, and others around the league as you know, one of these really strong defensive minds who earns a shot. He could have waited until next cycle to do that because really, I think it was only a matter of time before this happened, whether it was going to be in Tampa Bay or elsewhere. Yeah, it's Courtney Cronin filling in uh, for Fitz tonight with me, Sarah Spain at Spain and Fitz. Uh, I think Bruce Arians has been clearly very progressive in his hiring, both for people of color and women over the last few years, has set a model for the league. And 
what he said about what happens to a team and its staff, he said even his wife has pointed out to him, you're responsible for 37 people and their families when you make decisions like this. It seems very calculated to me. And maybe Bruce Arians said, I don't really want to go through another year with Tom breathing down my neck. I'm a fire, you know, play by the seat of my pants guy. I like to party. I like to go out. I like to, you know, do it a little less strict than Tom. Tom's very intense and our beefs and our headbutts have come over different styles. Maybe he just didn't want to do that again for another year with Tom. And then the timing of it allowed Todd to step in. Now, Todd, for his uh, part of this, uh, new head coach of the, of the Bucks, said in a presser, uh, just what Arians has meant to him. He will probably be, if not probably, definitely is the most influential coaching figure father figure speak that I've ever had in my life in this league. So as long as I shall live or continue to be in this league. And I just want to thank him personally before I go on just face to face. So the whole world knows uh, what he's meant to me, what he means to our coaching staff, what he means as a family man, what he means as just hearing advice from us, taking advice from us, cracking a whip, uh, understanding who's in the building, being comfortable in his skin, making everyone else feel comfortable in their skin, and allowing us to coach football. You don't get that everywhere. Hmm. It's a big moment for him and obviously a big decision for everybody involved, but it leaves us with a mostly intact coaching staff, a lot of returning players, and Bruce Arians still in the building. Uh, I guess we could keep debating the conspiracy theories about just how much Brady was involved. Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. We'll get back to the NFL, but the Bucks are taking on the Nets tonight. Is the picture getting clearer in the Eastern Conference, or are we as confused as ever? We'll tell it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz tonight. We got some good NBA action tonight. Bucks at Nets, 7.30 p.m. Clippers at the Bulls. Paul George, after 34 in his return last night, taking on my guy DeMar DeRozan. We'll see just how much the Clippers might have a shot to, to make a bit of a run here if they get PG back playing like that. Lakers at the Jazz, 10 p.m. Still no LeBron or AD for the Lakers, but uh, Jazz have had some ugly losses recently. We'll keep an eye on that as well. Uh, let's talk quickly about last night because we saw a Heat Celtics game that seemed to give us a couple more pieces of insight about the East. And Courtney, I'm not even going to begin to act like I know what the final standings will look like or even where a team might want to land because you might be trying to avoid the Nets by not getting the number one spot and they might slide all the way out there. They might move up. Like it is still so volatile. But in watching that Heat Celtics, we saw a Heat team that figured out how to execute to a plan down the stretch devastating defense in the fourth and a Celtics team that started getting heated about the refs and complaining had 19 turnovers. Their stars were shut down. It just looked like a team that could suffer that sort of interior collapse in a postseason series. If you get the right kind of squad opposite them that gets in their heads. And that's the biggest concern you have for a Celtics team that looks really good and has since the beginning of the year, December. T uh, but uh, this was, this was a, a potentially portending the future for Boston. Yeah, I mean, this is a Boston team that is usually used to being the more physical team on the floor. And like you were mentioning, them getting frustrated with the referees last night. Anytime they up the physicality against opponents, usually that causes the other team to shrink. Well, 
Miami didn't shrink last night. It felt like they almost did some reverse psychology here, embracing Mm -hmm. and then matching that physical nature of the game. And that's a problem because Boston kind of like looked at them like, huh? Wait a second. Like, it's like that Spider-Man meme. They think they see themselves (laughs) out there and then they can't handle it. And to your point, so many turnovers, 19 turnovers that turned into 24 points for the Heat. And there's a reason that they're the one seed. I think that we've known that about this Heat team for a while. But that being said, I still feel like Boston's kind of dangerous here. And they have the they have the recipe. They have the formula to compete in the East when they're starting, or, you know, continuing to be so many question marks about all these other teams, the Bulls, the Philadelphia 76ers, Toronto. Are they good? Are they not? They're not in the playing tournament anymore. So I guess they're somewhat good. And now all of that is starting to happen to Boston to where we're starting to realize, okay, there are spots where they are vulnerable. And it felt like last night Miami exposed so much of that entirely, especially when they collapsed Boston, that is, in the third quarter. You look at the standings and how tight everything is in the East and has been for the entirety of the season. You're looking at, uh, you know, the Bucks are a game back on the Heat. Sixers and Celtics, two games back. Uh, the Bulls and the Raptors, four and a half back. And then you start to get a little bit deeper there. But you add into the mix that not only is this so tightly packed, you have so many question marks. What do the Nets look like when they actually have consistency game to game with Kyrie Irving being given the green light to play every game? What's the deal with the 76ers and the Celtics in terms of vaccinations Mm -hmm. and which of their players would not be available if they ended up facing the Raptors in the postseason? You've got a Sixers team that, again, as great as the numbers look for for James Harden as a postseason player, if you just go box score, you can look and say he's a guy who steps up. There have also been moments where he absolutely disappears. So which James Harden is going to be there for the Sixers in the postseason? There are so many questions across the East. We're going to get a look at another pretty serious matchup tonight with the Nets and the Bucks. And honestly, Courtney, I was talking about this on Debatable today. The Bucks have suffered because they don't have enough drama. We haven't talked about a major injury, a player asking out via trade, a player rejecting vaccinations. We've just had a team that has quietly gone about its business. Brooke Lopez has missed time. There's, that's what we're talking about. But mostly a team that just looks really freaking good and a star in Giannis that somehow isn't being talked about for MVP despite putting up the numbers once again to absolutely be in the conversation. Maybe tonight... They get a big win over the over the Nets, and we get closer to the postseason enough for them to get back in the conversation more often. Yeah, I think the funny thing is that he is having Giannis one of the best seasons of his career, yet we're not talking about him potentially winning his third MVP. It's so wild to me. And, you know, unlike this Nets team that is rife with drama, that's the one thing that you don't see at all with the defending champions. And, you know, injuries have played a big part of why this team looks different this year. I found a really interesting stat that they only have one line lineup with like their best players um and you can argue that being their big three Giannis Drew Holiday Chris Middleton but they have one lineup that has logged more than 60 minutes together all season that's crazy to me considering the consistency what we've seen from this Bucks team last year and that you know they still are a force when those three are on the floor together like that has been the the crux of why they've been able to kind of rebound here and get back into a groove in the later portion of the season. Yeah, their defense has slipped this year. It's not the same group that it was in the same intensity that it was last year, especially in the postseason. But as far as that goes, I think that the like return of Brooke Lopez here 
is going to help them in a number of different matchups because he was so good during the postseason last year and he can you know drop in the you know with his coverage and just the way that he is kind of in the middle of the floor there those matchups he's able to draw you know he's really effective at forcing scorers out of their comfort zone so I mean yeah. when that guy get you know when you get that at this point of the year and you're rolling right into the playoffs that feels like some sort of momentum you could ride throughout the month of April that's honestly uh, just adds to more questions that we have about the NBA that won't be solved until we actually see teams face each other in postseason series. As for the Bucks, we are not alone in praising them, uh, nor should we be. Monica McNutt on the uh, Sports Center today talking about why she still thinks they're the team to beat. It is the defending champions. It is the Milwaukee Bucks. Did you see Giannis Antetokounmpo take four dribbles yesterday and go coast to coast and finish casually? Uh, this team is playing with such tremendous purpose. And quite frankly, Giannis is looking more and more unguardable day by day. I love that post-game sound that we ran about him not needing to necessarily turn over a switch and allow his instincts. What he's developing in his instincts too is the ability to slow the game down. Yes, he certainly can overwhelm you with his power, but I actually think he's doing a better job this year of picking his spots although he makes the entire court look like it could easily be his spot. So to me, you add Brooke Lopez, who chipped in with 17 points last night. You know the defender that you have in Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton's ability to be a closer. The champs look like they're poised to run it back. Yep. They're sitting at number two right now, again, right behind the heat. Meanwhile, the Nets are sitting at eight. Um, and Courtney, I mean, I, I think... I don't know that I've been this excited for a postseason to roll out in terms of just having no clue which team is going to emerge. I mean, the East is filled with question marks, and they just become more pronounced as the year goes on. And I mean, I'm looking at this play-in tournament right now with, with Charlotte and Atlanta and, you know, the seven seed and eight seed with the, with the Brooklyn Nets and the Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, wasn't yep. Cleveland just the Kyrie, hot? Just Kyrie going to, to Cleveland, no big deal. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the storylines there write themselves, but wasn't this Cleveland team supposed to be like the sleeper in the East and, you know, undeniable following the All-Star break? and then they kind of fell off, and now Toronto all of a sudden again. Apparently they're good. They've had some good wins, and they're the sixth seed, currently facing Philadelphia in the first round. I like it because it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty, and all of these question marks could actually like lead to some really fun matchups and storylines in the postseason, whereas in the West, I feel like we kind of know what we're getting. We do know who's at the top, at, at least, and then there's a pretty big drop-off in the West. It's Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz. We're one day away from the women's Final Four starting in Minneapolis. We'll talk about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Women's Final Four is going to be absolute fire. These matchups are incredible. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight. ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Andrea Carter's going to be working the sideline game broadcast alongside Ryan Rucco, Rebecca Lobo, and Holly Rowe. We've got incredible matchups, superstar players, names that you recognize. Uh, we're going to get you hyped for it. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. You can save big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or boat. Visit Progressive.com. Pumped to welcome in Andrea Carter, ESPN College Basketball Analyst, part of the extremely excellent studio and on-court coverage that we've had for the Women's College Basketball Tournament. It's really been fantastic, and I felt uh, very informed and ready for all these games, which have been spectacular <laughs> as well. Let's get into these final four matchups. This is, uh, for the most part, a bunch of teams we're all very familiar with. 
you know, you've got three of the four teams that reached the final weekend last year, three of the four teams that have been number one seeds for the last five straight tournaments. So let's get into the first one and what we expect out of a South Carolina team taking on a Louisville team that, you know, one of them is wired away the best team in the country all year long. And Louisville, no no slouches there. They, they're, they're in the national semis for the fourth time as well. How do you see this matchup? This matchup is honestly so exciting because of what we've seen from South Carolina all season long and the dominance of Aaliyah Boston on the inside. But their guards have been – they've had games where the guards have struggled, right, which plays right into the hands of Louisville, who is this scrappy – physical team that makes you turn the basketball over 20 times they score off of those turnovers 20 plus points where South Carolina has an advantage in offensive rebounds Louisville has an advantage in creating turnovers right so in a game of possessions it really could even out if South Carolina doesn't take care of the basketball Emily Inksler for Louisville is one of the most disruptive players in the nation. She's long. She's really deceptive. And then Haley Van List has scored 20 points in four straight games in the tournament. And uh, just a lot of excitement, honestly, for both teams. They're different teams. They have different styles of play. It's going to be a physical, fast game. Aaliyah Boston averaging 16.8 points, 12.2 rebounds, 1.9 assists, two and a half blocks a game. Uh, She's a Naismith player (laughs) of the year for a very big reason here. And maybe the favorite to win it all is South Carolina um, because she makes them go. And I'm wondering from your perspective and seeing her throughout this tournament, but also throughout the season, what makes her so hard to stop on the court? Honestly, her, her size is one thing, but, Her conditioning level, I mean, she does not stop when she's on the floor. So you have this relentless mindset that some players have, but they don't have that mindset at her size, and they don't have the conditioning level to carry out that mindset at her size, right? So it it makes her extremely difficult to guard because when you've got someone with her length, her height, her strength, that has a mindset like I'm going to dominate and then has the conditioning level to do so, it's so hard to stop. And and then it really gets difficult because if the guards drive, right, and and, you you help if you're on defense, then you're just out of position. And if you're out of position on Aaliyah Boston, it's going to be extremely difficult to keep her off the glass. Or just think of this, if you send two to Aaliyah Boston, say you're trying to double her, you're trying to stop her, then someone else is open to get an offensive rebound. So it's really kind of a double-edged sword when you're trying to stop her. It opens up things for everyone else. But I honestly think it's it's a combination of her skill set, her mentality, but also her conditioning level. That is the reason why she can make the plays that she makes throughout a full 40 minutes of basketball. Andrea Carter with us here on Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight. You can follow her at Andrea underscore Carter. Boston, not only National Player of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, and her coach, uh, Don Staley, Women's College Coach of the Year. So South Carolina taking home all the hardware. Don Staley admitted that this South Carolina team's defense is always going to show up. They lead the country in opponents' field goal percentage, effective field goal percentage, points per play. Like, they are going to shut you down. But when their offense doesn't show up, things get a bit more dicey. How do you Mm -hmm. see this team, if Louisville manages to shut down Boston, who steps up? Uh, I definitely think it's going to have to be Destiny Henderson. I think a lot weighs on Zaya Cook 
And I'm going to say Victoria Saxon as well because Saxon plays with Boston down low. And so that's where you get into if they do send a double, right, Saxon has to make the right cut. Saxon has to crash the board. Saxon is the one that can really benefit from teams doubling. So can the guards. Destiny Henderson and Zaya Cook, if a guard goes to double Aaliyah Boston, they've got to create space to get into their shots. But not only settle for jump shots on the outside, but catch it, shot fake, try to get into the paint. I think South Carolina's guards, Zaya Cook and Destiny Henderson, if they can handle full court pressure and take care of the ball, and then in the half court look to score, not just to shoot, because I think that's where South Carolina gets in trouble, the guards shooting too many shots because people sag off and there's space to shoot. But you've got to give up a good shot to get a great shot. So those mm. the guard play and then the play of Victoria Saxon opposite of Aaliyah Boston, uh, those, those three are going to be really important. Andrea, has any team other than Louisville benefited from the transfer portal as much as this team? Because when you think about Emily Inkster get, you know, getting plucked out of the portal last spring and then pairing her with Mikasa Robinson, it feels like that duo was set up for this Final Four the moment that Louisville tapped into the transfer portal. It, absolutely. And it's really special that Mikasa Robinson – was happy to have Emily Inksler as a part of the team, right? Because they play the same position. So if you're Mikasa Robinson, you could easily say, hey, I, no, I don't, I don't want her to take my minutes. But I think the unselfishness of her, and really the unselfishness of the entire team, I mean, they faced Emily Inksler in the ACC season after season after season. So I think everybody knew what they were getting and knew the value that she could bring. And they just want to win. So they're, they're very open to bringing her in. I think the coaches were brilliant to bring her in because she gives them a piece that they just didn't have, her mobility, her activity. But then also getting Chelsea Hall at the point guard position. You know, you lose Dana Evans last season who did so much for them with the ball in their hands. You get Chelsea Hall, who's totally different than Dana, but she can hit shots, she can score, but she can also facilitate and find everyone else. And she's a transfer from Vanderbilt. So I think Louisville did a phenomenal job at getting players that fit with their skill set. But also when I see this team at practices, I saw them in December, I saw them, I've seen them this week, and they've got players that fit as far as skill set goes, but they got personalities that fit as well. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody gels so well together all the coaches have talked to me a lot about the team chemistry and that's not always guaranteed when you bring in transfers so I think it's been solid job with the transfer portal it's Spain and Fitz Courtney Cronin in for Fitz we're talking to Andrea Carter ESPN college basketball analyst uh cool stat came out the highest NIL value for the men's and women's final four players four of the uh four of the five women all of them uh, uh names that we've now become so familiar with Beckers Van Lith Cook and Fudd. I can't believe we made it seven minutes without talking UConn here on ESPN. Very <laughs> proud of us. Let's get to it. The other matchup, UConn-Stanford. What a dream. We've got the defending champs who have looked like absolute assassins taking on the UConn Huskies going to their 14th straight Final Four with Beckers and Fudd looking dangerous. What's the secret to this one? Oh my gosh. This this game, honestly, is, is going to be incredible because there's really no secret like both teams run a very similar offense both teams are going to try and dice you up backdoor cuts ball screens this offensive chemistry that is just so difficult to go against like when you watch the game tomorrow just try to count 
how many actions happen on the offensive end for both teams? Because it's ridiculous. It, you might see eight things, handoff, back screen, ball screen. It's just one after the other after the other. So really the team that I think can defend, sit down in the stands, and play defense is going to be really important. And then for UConn, it'll be important for them to get out in transition, get out in transition and run. Dorka Juhas was a big loss for them. So other post players are going to have to step up. Um, and I think that uh, it's it's just a game of two, I would say, precise basketball teams. Like, these two teams are execute mm. with precision. It, mm-hmm. It's going to be beautiful. And the one thing I know I'm going to be counting is how many different lineups they might end up using in this one <laughs> throughout the season. Gino Ariema has used 11 different starting lineups. You know, mm-hmm. in a lot of other years, they've strolled in undefeated. They almost feel like they're playing with some sort of invincibility. But this year's so different for them, um, especially mm-hmm. because of what we saw on Monday in that double overtime win against NC State. Do you feel like yeah. maybe them being in a slight underdog role, if we even want to call it that, this unfamiliar territory, does that actually give them adv- an advantage down the stretch? You know, it's so... It's so interesting because, yes, slight underdogs in regards to their season, but if you look at Connecticut, they've been in this game. This is their 14th straight season playing in this game. So they're coming in with that experience as an advantage, and then I think their experience this specific season, I don't want to say it's been an advantage, but they've been battle-tested. I mean, they've had some very low points. They've had a lot of players have to step up and make plays. And when you talk to the players, they're like, we've been through it all, and we still made it here. So I I get the impression that their season has fueled them. Um, and, And I do think that, you know, they feel like we can do anything still, not not because they've had this remarkable, incredible season, but because they've made it through a very difficult season. So you couple that, you know, with their experience the past 14 years and always being in this game, um, I think there are a lot of things that can fuel this team, really, no matter how you look at it. It's going to be an awesome matchup. This whole Final Four, I'm so pumped for, including the multicast coverage, the burden to Rossi show, the elements that we're adding in our ESPN coverage that we haven't before for the Women's Final Four. Super pumped and super excited to see you man the sidelines. Thanks so much, Andrea. really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz tonight. Coming up, should LeBron and AD shut it down for the rest of the season? Also, what's the biggest L you've taken in sports or life? We'll explain why we're asking next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Ain't it just the luck of my Chicago Bulls that they get the Clippers right when Paul George is back? We couldn't couldn't get them a couple days ago? Come on. We have enough struggles right now with our Bulls squad. We We don't need PG in the house tonight, but he will be. 34 last night for Paul George as he made his return to the Clippers. Uh, after a significant time loss to injury. What will that mean for their future and Kawhi? We'll get into it. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. First, let's get to another team getting some players back. LeBron James expected and hoping to return against the Pelicans. Anthony Davis progressing toward a game-time decision. This is for tomorrow night. LeBron obviously missing some time from a sprained left ankle. Um, and uh, he is uh, missing tonight against the Jazz. Um, 
you know, a lot of conversation, Courtney, of course, about the Lakers all season long, regardless of whether they've been pretty deep down the standings. Um, that's to be expected uh, coming off a recent title and also anytime you got LeBron and AD. Do you think that they should shut down these guys because you shouldn't believe that there's any chance, even if they slide in via the plane? Or is there a good reason to keep seeing what you got from them when they're out there together? I mean, the risk of injury is one thing, right? LeBron has said that his knee is always sore. And we're not even talking about his knee with this most recent injury. Um, you know, after the Pelicans game that they had the other night, which was a big win for New Orleans, now that they're the nine seed. But, you know, now it's now it's an ankle, right? And Anthony Davis is coming back. Do we know what version of Anthony Davis that we're going to get back? I don't know. I said this earlier last, like late last week when this game was going on on Sunday that I felt this is too big of a hill to climb. And I know that LeBron James is the most competitive human on earth. He's leading the NBA in scoring. He's had a bunch of 50-point games. And, you know, it's not truly affecting him on the offensive end. But how many, like, what do you really expect is going to happen? Let's say they get out of the play-in tournament. Do we really anticipate them going on a run here? I know what's being said. I know that the players have this pseudo-belief. I don't even feel like they truly see right. it, considering mm -hmm. how high of a mountain this is going to be for them to climb, knowing that LeBron's not healthy. Like These are injuries he's constantly dealing with, something that's nagging, and it feels like it's a new thing now just about every week on top of the knee. Well, the argument would be if the team was good enough, it wouldn't matter if he's injured because, again, like you said, he's the scoring leader for the NBA despite his age, his injury, and the team he's on. So if you thought they could put enough together to make a run, of course it would be worth it. Now, as I mentioned the other night on the show, LeBron wants to play another couple games because he's not eligible for the scoring title unless he gets to certain percentage of games played. That's a notch he wants in his belt. He wants to prove, I still got it, even if the rest of the team doesn't. Even if we've been without AD, Russ has been disappointing. Whoever else I can blame, uh, it, maybe not myself as the GM that put this team together, but he wants to prove that individually he could still take something away from what is ultimately kind of a lost season. Normally I would say you never know if you've got LeBron. I feel like you do know this season. It's just not a good enough team and never has been. I do think he'll come back to make sure he gets that scoring title. And I'm not sure with AD. He's been out since February 16th. If there's a real chance of another injury, I just don't get it. But um, maybe the point is you have to continue to see what you got. And you also might want him to come back if there's any consideration of potentially trading him mm -hmm. to another team to get enough pieces to get more of a of – a, bulked up roster instead of just believing him to be the heir apparent to LeBron, which I don't think most people see anymore. Yeah, I mean, this team has used 32 different starting lineups this season. Do you feel like if they get LeBron and AD back that they're all of a sudden going to, A, have these players at full health? I mean, AD has not played since right before the All-Star break mm -hmm. in February and has been hedging with his foot like, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, progressing towards it. It's going to happen at some point soon that I may return. Like, he hasn't given this outright notion that he's coming back. It sounds more like a game-time decision. And the risk of re-injury – would terrify me if I'm in the front office in Los Angeles thinking, okay, what can we get for this player? What if he re-injures it? Look at what happened last year when he came back yep. for you know in the playoffs and, and got injured right away. Do you want to deal with that again if you're Los Angeles trying to move on from this player and realizing that this team is not built to win a championship in its current form? No. 
And I think for LeBron and the longevity factor here, of course, he wants that scoring title. He wants to have something that comes out of a season where, you know, his decisions and helping get Russell Westbrook here, it all blew up in his face. He wants some sort of consolation prize from that, and I can't blame him, but – Oh, man, it just feels like him battling through all of these injuries. Maybe it's for not for some people. Certainly for him, if he gets that title, it, it was worth it. But I just worry about, you know, what happens if he comes like a game shy of that because there's an injury that knocks right. him out. Like, that yeah. would be so – it'd be way more disappointing than stopping it now. It's Spain and Fitz. Courtney Crowden in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. I mentioned Paul George returning for the Clippers as they take on my Bulls who have been sliding. They sit in fifth in the East. And listen, this has been a team that's been different ever since Caruso and Ball went out. Caruso is back, which certainly helps. But that that, that tandem on the perimeter was just a game changer for the way this team plays. Now, there's still obviously an opportunity for them to tighten up and and get strong before the postseason but uh it's they've they've lost most of their recent games and it just hasn't clicked this is an interesting one because you've got DeRozan versus uh Paul George and also because we have to see just how much Paul George can replicate last night's 34 point output in a big comeback win for the Clippers um is it realistic to expect Courtney that he's just going to come back and slide right in and if he does what does that mean for Kawhi Leonard, there have been some rumors that he maybe would want to come back if they had a shot at making a real run in the postseason. Obviously had surgery on that ACL in July. If they actually added him back, that'd be a whole different story. Yeah, and I mean, Paul George looked great on Tuesday in that win, but like when he's playing against Alex Caruso, who... I know the Bulls have been sliding. I've, you know, now that I've been back in Chicago actually watching it, Sarah, it is kind of depressing that this is not the same team that mm-hmm. it was in November. Like, his defense can be pretty devastating. So I don't know if you're going to see the same Paul George that you saw the other night. Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch tonight. Uh, right now, Brooklyn, by the way, up two on Milwaukee late in the first of that one. We'll keep you updated. Quickly wanted to ask you at Sarah Spain, at Courtney R. Cronin, the Nationals today in spring training game, allowed 29 runs. The quote from them, things just got a little bit out of hand. Uh, The Cardinals putting up 29. They scored 15 times in the eighth inning. We wanted to ask you, in honor of this debilitating L, what is the biggest L you've ever taken in life or in sports? Uh, Hit us up at Sarah Spain, at Courtney R. Cronin. I'll post it on Twitter. Uh, Dig deep. See if you could think of an L that is on the level of 29 allowed runs. Thank goodness it was just an exhibition game. That still hurts, though. Coming up, hear why our next guest thinks that this Saturday is not the biggest game in the history of Duke. It's coming up. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin hanging out with me tonight in place of Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We talked women's Final Four, the men's Final Four, including a massive, huge, can't be overstated or overhyped game on Saturday. And let's get to uh, the only guest we could bring on for this. Of all the people we're talking to this week ahead of Duke UNC, this is the man I like talking to the most, not only because he's got the inside scoop from being a player there and spending time uh, playing for Coach K, but because he's always got the insight on the NCAA as a whole. We're going to get to some of the other big-picture questions I have, but I was listening to ESPN Daily today. Ryan McGee was talking to Pablo Torre about how Coach K is trying to sort of downplay the significance of this moment and this rivalry and prioritize instead a chance to get a national championship. Both things are very important. 
You've been in that locker room. What do you want to hear from a coach, specifically Coach K, before this game? Do you want him to make you recognize this is the biggest game in the history of the program, or do you want him to act like it's not so that the pressure doesn't get to you? Right before a game, Sarah, I don't think you want to hear very much, honestly, as a player. Um, you know, And I don't think it's the biggest game in the history of the program. Um, it, it, look, there are a lot of layers to this, especially for fans. But, you know, there, there comes a time when you go, do you want to win this rivalry game and then go to the championship game? Or do you want to go to the championship game and there happens to be a rival in front of you? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing for some people, but this is more a fan's um, problem. Uh, the players, you know, have to concentrate on, on what's important. You know, like if you're climbing a ladder, you can't think about the destination being the top. You have to think of each rung. And, uh, and this is the next rung on a, a ladder toward the destination of a championship. And, you know, I know that sounds trite and, uh, and simple, but, you know, the, the truth is one of the things Coach K has always done best is take the complicated and simplify it. And, uh, you know, like it's a million years ago, but when, when I was a kid, you know, you'd shoot in your backyard and you'd think about, you'd pretend you were playing in the NCAA championship game. And then when you got there, and you were shooting in the championship game, you were thinking about being in your backyard. You know, you wanted to simplify it. And, you know, why add extra weight to it? The weight, the weight's going to be there. There's no reason to add to it yourself. And Coach K had talked about it this week that, you know, all the ancillary stuff needs to stay where it's at because they're trying to get to the championship. Like, it, the rivalry is all good and well for the Final Four storyline, but they're trying to not have what happened the last time these two teams faced off in Cameron Indoor Stadium happen again. Do you feel like there's anything they can take away from that last meeting and that, okay, maybe they got all the pomp and circumstance out of the way when they had, you know, almost 100 former players of Coach K's on the floor with him that – that part of the celebration is done now. They realize the test that they have in UNC, and they can't even, like, re- begin to, like, think or let um, any of that other stuff, like, seep into the game plan or what's going to happen come Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the, the last game or even the first game between the two teams is going to enter into this much. Um, you know, my sense is they've watched the tape uh, of uh, and breakdowns of things that they need to do better, but it's more – you know, it's not necessarily, hey, we have to manage emotions or do this or do that. I mean, one of the things you kind of ask people is, you know, especially fans that are talking about this, he goes, you know, how do you, how do you think you'd feel about a win over your rival if you win the, the semifinal and lose the final? You think mm-hmm. you'll feel good about it? And the answer is probably not. You know, that, that it's, that there's a, an ultimate goal here. And having, having been there, um, you know, you lose that title game. Uh, it sticks with you for the rest of your life, and and what you did in the semifinal doesn't really comfort that. Yeah, a lot of people comparing to this to sort of miracle on ice, where like, will we remember what comes after after the magnitude of this matchup? Jay Billis, ESPN college basketball analyst, former Duke player, with us here. Uh, let's talk about the game itself. We've spent a lot of time about the historical relevance, but actual matchup wise, what are the keys to each team getting the win? Well, I think for, for Duke, it's guarding uh, Carolina's three-point shooters, specifically Caleb Love, R.J. Davis, and Brady Manick. And Brady Manick is averaging about 22 points a game in the tournament. He scored more points than, than anybody uh, that's played in the tournament thus far. Uh, 86, I think it is, in the four games. And that includes getting thrown out of the Baylor game with 10 minutes to go where he had 26 and probably would have had 40 the way he was playing, and Carolina would have blown Baylor out. Um, 
So Carolina's formidable, uh, but the, the biggest problem, I think, that's posed by North Carolina for Duke is, is Armando Bacot. And he, he probably doesn't get talked about enough because, you know, he's, he's got 29 double-doubles on the season. The last ACC player to do that was Tim Duncan in 1995. And he's been the most consistent player, the most consistent big guy in the country. Uh, maybe Oscar Shebway's had some bigger moments, but he hasn't been more consistent. Baycott has been the most consistent. And he's averaging 16 rebounds a game in the tournament. He's been fantastic and, and steady at, the, at a high level. Uh, but Duke presents some matchup problems that, that North Carolina is going to have a hard time with. Like, who do you put on Paolo Bancaro? You know, he, they put uh, Baycott on him in the first game, and Baycott picked up two fouls in the first five minutes, and that was kind of the game. And, uh, and you know, Leaky Black has guarded him, but that means Brady Manick's going to have to guard somebody like A.J. Griffin. And Griffin did not play well in the second game. He only had five points. But uh, Duke's played better than anybody in the tournament. It's been extraordinary. The, the numbers they've put up, they're shooting 54% from the field. Uh, they've been incredibly efficient. They're scoring more points in the paint than anybody. Uh, so both teams are playing well, and they don't necessarily resemble uh, the teams that played against each other in Durham in that last game of the regular season. Villanova is a strong history uh, against Kansas, and obviously the Final Four weekend brings that all into the forefront. We know that Kansas's defense travels pretty darn well. How do you think that will affect this Wildcats team in the Final Four? Well, the, the thing that Kansas does better than most any team is they get out in transition, and Villanova's not going to allow that. Uh, with Justin Moore out, who's their second-leading scorer, second-leading assist man, second and threes, uh, and it's just been an Iron Man for them. Uh, with him out with that Achilles tear, uh, that means they're basically down to a five-man team. They can get spot duty out of Chris Archidiacono and maybe Jordan Longino, but they're not gonna they're not gonna get big minutes out of their bench. So they got to slow the game down to a crawl. And Villanova plays at one of the slowest paces in the country. I think only Virginia, among major conference teams, plays slower. Uh, so it's going to be a walk it up half-court game, and and they're they're really strong defensively, and they can seize the tempo. So it's going to be a grinder, but because uh, Kansas has so many scoring options, you know, I favor Kansas in the game, especially with Justin Moore not able to play. Uh, but it, it's not that, that Villanova can't win. They can, but they're going to have to make a, a – they're going to have to shoot a decent percentage of threes. They, they, they shot 29% their last two from three and won both those games. I mean, they won, you know, they won a game against Houston shooting under 30% from the field. That game was about as physical as anything you're going to see. Uh, but I favor Kansas in the game. It, it doesn't mean Villanova can't win. They can. But Kansas is a little bit better, I think. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight as we talk to Jay Billis. You can follow him at Jay Billis on Twitter. Jay wrote an article. It's up on ESPN.com if folks want to read it, called The Biggest Issues Facing College Basketball On and Off the Court. Uh, you point out things like the physicality of on-court play, rule changes, NIL, uh, transfer portal, who's going to fill in uh, Coach K's shoes. Uh, I want to get to some of those, but I also want to ask about Mark Emmert and the NCAA's responsibility to Title IX and the inequalities with the women's program. Yesterday, or maybe the day before, he said we were at preliminary stages. They have now had 50 years of Title IX, so that's 50 years of noncompliance and being illegal in the ways that they have uh, distributed resources to the men's and women's games. How does that change? You change leadership, frankly. Um, I was stunned by what I heard from him. I shouldn't be, but I was. The idea that you would say uh, we have a, a ways to go and we're not remotely close 
uh, on equity. Like, that's your job. And you pointed out, I mean, they've, had, they've only had 50 years. You've only had a half century. And, and what, it took Sedona Prince of Oregon taking pictures of a weight room to expose right. the right. abysmal failure that the NCAA has been on issues of equity. And, and look, they say they've said all these years they're not a business, even though it's a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry run off college campuses. And, and equity is a problem. I mean, that, that is, you know, it's stunning to hear that. And it's stunning that people aren't jumping up and down about it and, and calling for change in leadership because there, there's no other conclusion to draw other than NCAA leadership, including the Board of Governors, inclu- you know, especially Mark Emmert, uh, has been an abysmal failure. And, and that was I took that as an admission uh, mm-hmm. that, that they have been failures. That was an admission. And uh, and I can't believe that we sit back and allow this. Um, I, I think people should be jumping up and down about it, especially, uh, especially frankly, men. Um, it, it, it's embarrassing. It, it's it's just an ab- abject failure and abject embarrassment. I completely agree, and I actually hope the 50th anniversary celebrations of Title IX that are coming up in a month or so might shine such a bright spotlight on noncompliance that there might actually be some change. Although. I won't hold my breath. Uh, everybody go read Jay's story, Biggest Issues Facing College Basketball on and off the court. Thanks so much for the time. Enjoy Saturday. Sarah Courtney, thanks for having me. Jay Billis, ESPN College Basketball Analyst. He's the best. Tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast, bringing you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcast. Really good Duke UNC talk with Ryan McGee on today's show. Check it out. Coming up on Spain and Fitz, Pro Bowl linebacker Bobby Wagner has a new team in the same division he's played in all these years. We'll break it down and some more NFL talk coming up. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. The, uh, the Nationals gave up 29 runs in an exhibition game loss to the Cardinals yesterday, so we asked for the biggest L's you've taken. Uh, we're getting some good ones. At Trojan TPT made all three outs in a half of his Little League baseball game via strikeout. That means that the team went around three times. And then each time he struck out until the, the inning. That's that's really bad. That is that is incredibly bad. Uh, John A. Parker showed up for an open book midterm in college only to realize I didn't have the book. I just had to sit there and take my F like a champ. An L and an F all in one. Uh, keep them coming. We are, we are enjoying your failure. Sorry. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Going to talk a little more NFL with Courtney here. We covered a lot of the Bruce Arian stuff earlier in the show, and I think we still need to wait for more information for the conspiracy theorists to bulk up on their uh, claims that Tom Brady forced him out or for more of the story to reveal that it was indeed a, a succession plan put into place by Arians and the rest of that team. Meantime, while everyone's focused on that, Bobby Wagner has found a new team. Five years, $50 million with the Rams. And yeah, if you were surprised to find that the Rams had that kind of cash and opening uh, for Bobby Wagner, so was I. Uh, If you remember, the Seattle Seahawks let him go, uh, and he claims that he found out via social media that he was not told by the team, despite being one of the greatest players in Seahawks history, 
what do you make of this? This uh, this is obviously a team that is losing some key players to retirement and injury, but is going to look pretty strong next year. Yeah, I think defensively this is a great move for the Rams. I mean, he's not the same pass-rushing presence that you get from someone like Von Miller, who, you know, it was a tough blow for the Rams to do all that last year midseason to get Von Miller from Denver, and then all of a sudden he leaves in free agency and leaves you with a big gap to fill, but you throw in Bobby Wagner, who even a decade into his career, Sarah, is still playing at a really high level. You pair him with Aaron Donald, you pair him with Jalen Ramsey, and I think for the younger part of this team and how he fits within this defense, this is a group that spent a third-round pick last year uh, on a linebacker in Ernest Jones. So to bolster up the middle of their defense in putting Bobby Wagner next to him, that's a great look for a team that's trying to repeat winning another Super Bowl next season, which is something that no one has been able to do since the Patriots did it in the early 2000s. You know, they had some work to do on defense, and I feel like this, he's a veteran presence. He's from the Los Angeles area. He is, you know, a little bit of upping the ante every time mm-hmm. he has to face Seattle twice a year now. You're going to get a pretty good fired up Bobby Wagner in those games, and I think this is a huge move for them. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about perhaps some of the moves this offseason, which has been one of the craziest we've ever seen, are inspired by the Rams, a team that said F them picks, goes out to get all their talent in free agency, secures enough young talent to be able to balance it all in the books, and a lot of teams looking around and saying we're willing to sacrifice to get the quarterback we need in the moment that we need, and a lot of copycatting. We'll see how it works out in the long run for any of these teams. Rams already got that Super Bowl. So it's tough to argue against their plan. We'll see how it works for everybody else. Meanwhile, we've got owners meetings in the NFL and Robert Kraft for the second time, really publicly sort of questioning Bill Belichick and what he's done in terms of draft and putting talent on that roster. Here's Robert Kraft. More than anything, it, it bothers me that we haven't been able to win a playoff game in the last three years. I'm a big fan of Mac Jones. I think you see how hard he works and he wants everything to go right and he puts the time and energy and his personality as a team guy. So we have a chance because without a good coach and a good quarterback, no matter how good the other players are, I don't think you can win consistently. And I think Bill, has a unique way of doing things. You know, it's worked out pretty well up to now, so it doesn't sometimes look straight line to our fans and or to myself, but I'm results-oriented. Ooh, okay. Nice. An interesting way of doing things is certainly not a ton of praise for a guy who's won you that many Super Bowls, but I wonder if Robert Kraft, you could slot him right alongside Belichick and Brady as someone who's gotten the success he's had because of a dedication to winning. Even even if you could say there's been an embarrassment of success there, he appears to be over the rebuilding stage. Yeah, 20 plus years of, of winning and now these three years where things have not been perfect <laughs> and he saw Tom Brady leave and go win a Super Bowl in Tampa Bay and all the money they poured into free agency in 2021, like a record-setting hundreds of millions of dollars, all for that to be a first-round exit in the wild card round. Like, 
this is not the first time, Sarah, that he's taken shots at Bill Belichick mm-hmm. and his draft strategy. And you heard what he said, like some of the moves don't make sense to some of our fans. And, you know, to me, I, I looked at this and I was like, I'm, I'm sure that Bill Belichick is not going to love hearing those comments from the owner. You know, we've heard about the rift in the franchise before, and, I mean, there's been books written about it by colleagues of ours where this is the type of stuff that you got to wonder at this point of Bill Belichick's career, how much longer is he going to want to end up putting up with that? How much longer is he going to be afforded the ability to keep putting up with, you know, seasons that may come short of the ultimate expectation if Robert Kraft is truly expecting this team to get back to the Super Bowl next year? It's uh, – right. It's interesting because he says it in such a passive-aggressive way where he's muted and he's kind of in this laid-back tone, and that's usually how he is. But considering the environment of owners' meetings and where this team is right now, um, I don't know if he's putting him on warning, but uh, Bill Belichick, that is. But it definitely felt like that was a calculated comment or two or three from Robert Kraft. I think there's a you could you could argue okay you're expecting too much for considering the success you've had. You could also say that everybody wants an owner who cares that much. And it's true. You know, you could you could rest on your success and your laurels and not put the money and time into doing it again, but a lot of people I think would want an owner like that. Uh, just makes things a little more awkward around the office, I'm guessing. It's Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz. Uh, speaking of clapping back or throwing shade, Carson Wentz may have done just that to Jim Ursay with a cryptic tweet. Jim Ursay uh, made some comments about the ill-fated one season that Wentz spent with the Colts, and it was pretty aggressive. And Carson Wentz posted a sponsored tweet in response. We're going to tweet it. We want you to see if you can come up with a better sponsored fake clapback than that. Talk at soccer next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We tried to start talking a little soccer last night when the NFL burst in with that breaking Arians news. So let's get to a little bit more about the U.S. men's national team actually qualifying for the World Cup. Let's head over to ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twelman, who's going to explain to us how much has changed for a U.S. men's national team that now finds themselves headed to the World Cup versus maybe what still is yet to be accomplished by this American squad. Taylor, you became famous for your exclamation, what are we doing here? After the last time that they didn't make it, how much has changed since then? Uh, that gif and meme was used a lot during COVID, I'll say that much. <laughs> yes. Um, I, Sarah, honestly, you know, one, you qualified, right? So no matter how you qualified, the fact is you're in the tournament. And so that in and of itself has changed. But I think the biggest talking point is that on October 10th, 11th, 2017, when I had to explain for about 24 to 36 hours on every show on our network <laughs> of the disappointment and the magnitude of it, I don't think people fully realized where – the next generation of player was coming. You are, you are talking to me now with an American player or two at Chelsea, Juventus, Barcelona, Borussia Dortmund, Leipzig, Bayern Munich, all of the big clubs in the world, and they're not just on the team. They're contributing at a high level. That is the biggest change. And what that's going to ultimately do is it gives you two or three World Cups, knock on wood, barring any injuries, with a golden generation of player. But now what does that do to the generation or two behind that? 
I'm not going to judge this group by 2022. I will judge the group by 2026 when the World Cup is here. All of those players that I just mentioned are going to be in their prime. That's ultimately what changes the view of the American player is at a completely different level than it was four and a half, five years ago. So this team qualified following a 2-0 loss. And I'm wondering, because of what happened in 2018, is it still worth celebrating qualifying, even if they finish third in the region? And, like, how big of a moment would you say this is for the state of U.S. soccer? Well, Courtney, it's a good question, right? Because, you know, it was a little anticlimactic to lose to Costa Rica 2-0, and yet you're still qualifying. And yet (laughs) the point is you did, right? You still qualified. Now, Nobody knows in six months, eight months, 14 months where you finished in qualifying. The fact is Portugal is now going to their four straight World Cup. Three of those four have been via playoff. No one really knows that. No one really cares because you're in the final tournament and you're representing your country. So you still got to qualify. It's not easy. Uh, You guys have heard me multiple times on our network talk about how – This can't be the barometer of success. The barometer of success and what you're chasing is to be like the women on the national stage and chase the Barcelona and the Argentinas and the Germanys and Englands of the world that everyone's chasing the women on. But that takes time. You're also chasing where it's very different than the women. hundred years of history where these countries have had a head start on developing players at a high level in playing and winning major tournaments. So it's always going to be difficult for us Americans to kind of temper our expectations and our arrogance to a certain level, but you have to when it comes to the men's national team because it's a completely different game. Taylor Twelman's with us, former international soccer player who now comes on our air to tell us exactly what is uh, plaguing our men's national team or occasionally to talk about their successes. And in this moment, despite the fact that there's certainly plenty still to to wait and see about when it comes to this team, this is a step forward. What is the biggest key to to them being able to take, like you said, those young up-and-coming players, those promising players that go play abroad and come back and want to play for the U.S.? What has been the key to them being able to keep them in America, you know, convince them to to dedicate themselves and and then become part of this changing team. The sense of pride hasn't changed, Sarah, even though the debacle of 2017 happened. And there's, you know, we often use words loosely, this redemption. And I get it. This generation looks at it. And Christian Pulisic was so disappointed that he didn't get to play in the 2018 World Cup. So there is a sense of redemption. But for the group, the collective – there wasn't a ton of players on this roster that had that awful experience in 2017. So they're young. They're inexperienced. They're dumb. They, they don't know what they're experiencing. So they're, they're forging their own path. I think that's a positive because now you've beaten Mexico or you haven't lost to Mexico in the last four games. You won the Nations League. You won the Gold Cup. And now you've qualified for the World Cup. So now all of a sudden there's positive reinforcement. Right. And so now you're forging your own path. And yet – We've never seen a group of players playing at the highest of levels. So what does that do? I, Sarah, I'll be honest, I don't know that answer, right? Because this is a player in Christian Pulisic that's won Champions League. An American's never done that. So what is their level of expectation when the World Cup comes in 200-plus days? I don't know that answer. I think that's what's most intriguing. But I also will temper expectations for everyone listening and saying this. In the last four years, we haven't seen this team because of COVID, because of schedules, and because of competitions. 
We haven't seen Greg Berhalter and the United States men's national team go up against anyone other than Mexico of the highest quality. Mm -hmm. And so until we see that, Sarah, I think you've got to temper expectations. And ultimately, Friday, when the draw comes out, then you can handicap what this level of success will be in Qatar. Yeah, real quick, I want to follow up on that. Uh, you were on ESPN Daily talking to Pablo Torre, and one of the fascinating things that you said was you were trying to put into context the idea of Italy not making the World Cup due to a loss to North Macedonia. And you said it's most interesting because the two major failures to make it have been sandwiched around a European championship. And you pointed out that that is potentially a tougher tournament than the World Cup because you don't have easy outs like the United States, which was such a sad reality to think about the fact that our our existence in the World Cup is what makes it less competitive than, you know, the best European championships. Well, it's it, the European championships is of the highest quality, and so many people in the game will tell you that it's arguably better than the World Cup because of the high-level competition. Now, Sarah and Courtney, they expanded it. Now, the new Euros is a lot different than the one that I was talking about with Pablo, but it doesn't matter. The facts are still there, and it comes down to the quality. The cream of the crop is in Europe and is in South America, and everyone else is chasing that. But even England is worried about the draw, Sarah. Even Italy, Mm. if they were in the tournament, are worried about the draw. There's only three or four teams in the world that look at the draw and say, no, we got this, because they're favored to win. Their expectation is to win. Everyone else, you need the chips to fall in the perfect place for you to have that success. And that's where I think the American sports fan, excuse me, doesn't fully understand that. The United States is not going in this as a one or two seed. And anyone that expects that is completely arrogant to the entire thing. They're going They've been in. watching the women too long. Yeah, you just get spoiled. Absolutely. Absolutely they have. And so you look at it and say, wait a minute. The, men, the, the level of expectation is extremely difficult. And, Sarah, you know this as well as I do, if not better. The women will tell you the world's catching up to them. Yeah. And it's oh, absolutely. because of how well – the women have grown the sport, and that's where this thing becomes very interesting because every other country in the world does soccer first, everything else second. We do soccer fourth or fifth, and everything else above that. That's where this becomes very difficult for, I think, American sports fans to wrap their heads around of saying, wait, the Americans are going to try to win it? Of course they're trying to win it. If they do, it's the biggest upset in the, in the history of sports. So there's some discourse I don't understand around the men's national team coach, Greg Peralta, that I'm hoping that you can explain to me a little bit. Because when you see someone who has won, you know, multiple different times, two trophies last year, three straight against Mexico, he got a point at Azteca, and more importantly, he qualified for the World Cup. Is the criticism around him fair, Taylor, or is this just like an overreaction that I see on social media? Uh, social media is the truck stop bathroom wall, Courtney. I can't believe you haven't figured that out yet. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you like you look at the phone number in the truck stop, and yet you don't, you're not supposed to call the phone number. But it is intriguing to read the stories on the wall. Anyways, I digress. Um, it's not totally fair. Um, I think any criticism, when it's rooted in constructive criticism, is completely fair. This has been – listen, his brother was a huge part of him being hired. And so this this idea of nepotism, which definitely gave him a leg up in the idea of recruitment and interviews, is absolutely part of the story. But the fact that the conversation has continued at the level of what it is, 
when the guy's won, I think, 75% of the games. He's won two trophies for the team. He's beaten Mexico three of the last four times, haven't lost in the last four times, and qualified for the World Cup, as you said, and yet people are still picking up things. that, that That's just unfortunate for Greg. Greg, I've had this conversation with a former teammate of mine. We were roommates in some of the national team trips. He understands that. So he's kind of compartmentalized it all and done a good job of just operating by which he's going to be judged by, and that's success. And can he get this team? I still think the World Cup is going to have a huge say in whether or not he's deemed a success. Because the one thing you don't want to do is have the level of success you've had now go to the World Cup and completely bomb, because then it doesn't matter. None of this matters. So I, I think Greg understands that. But for those of you on the outside that don't understand it, a lot of it comes from his brother Jay being involved with the U.S. Yeah. Soccer Federation mm-hmm. at the time of his hiring, him being brought in. They just It's the level of nepotism that many people feel like that's the reason why he got his job without paying any attention to what he was doing with the Columbus crew as a new coach. Hey, Taylor, we have to let you go. So one sentence. What would be considered successful enough to not be bombing at the World Cup? Round of 16. Get out of your group. You're done. All right. Awesome stuff. Appreciate the time. Pujols is in St. Louis. Okay, okay. Out of here. Always with the Cardinals with that guy. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle auto, home, or motorcycle insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Speaking of the Cardinals, they did put a beat down in the Nats in exhibition yesterday. We're going to get to your biggest L's. Also, some of these sponsored tweets that you would write in response to Carson Wentz's clap back at Ursay. And we got a close game in the NBA. We'll update you on it. It's all coming up next. Is this a clapback from Carson Wentz, or is he just taking advantage of getting paid? If you remember, Jim Ursay had some not-so-nice things to say about the Carson Wentz era in Indy. Didn't really pull any punches at the owners' meeting. He said, I think the worst thing you could do is have a mistake and try to keep living with it going forward. For us, it was something we had to move away from as a franchise. It was very obvious. It, of course, being Carson Wentz. So he posts a a bunch of photos on his Twitter riding or standing near a tractor and wrote, building a higher road at Bobcat Company. Hashtag I am Bobcat. Hashtag one tough animal. Hashtag sponsored. Take command. I'm running upward. And it had people thinking, the high road, huh? Is that what he's he's taking instead of responding to Ursay? We asked you from responses. It's uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, there was an absolutely tremendous response in the form of a faux-sponsored clapback. Uh, this is from It Just underscore Takes One. Revenge is best served cold, but condiments make them even tastier. Catch up with off-season intrigue at Heinz Tweets. Uh, pretty, pretty good, Courtney. Nobody else could compete with that one, but we did have a, uh, at Ryan W151. Revenge is the dish best served cold, but in case there are leftovers, Tupperware. <laughs> pretty good. I like that one. As far as it goes with Bobcat Company, I went to their website during a break, and I have looked to see whether building a higher road <laughs> is a ever. slogan of theirs used anywhere. <laughs> I've gone through about six pages. I can't find it, so... Whoever is in charge of his social media from his team, because I'm going to assume that Carson Wentz didn't post that himself right. or um, clearly was posing for photos with this excavator-looking thing. I mean, I don't. it's kind of a weird thing to wow, sponsor. That's, like, that's a sign go- you've been in Minnesota. I was like, it's a tractor. 
excavator, right? I don't know what right? the hell an like, excavator is. Congrats That's the thing you. that you like dig dig the ground up with, and I don't. It looks no, like he's no, building his own home good. somewhere in Washington. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I can't find that slogan anywhere. So kudos to whomever from his team came up with that, saying, "Hey, we're going to take the high road here with Jimmers yeah, and calling our good. guy a mistake." I look forward um, to more clapbacks in the form of paid endorsements. I'm here for it. If anyone wants me to clap back at anyone and pay me for it, I'm ready. Uh, we also had Bobby Cage, who had uh, the photo of Antonio Brown running off the field. When your feet hurt, but you got to get away, Doctor Scholes. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of good ones. We'll get to uh, the other question we asked you, but a quick update on some of the NBA that we mentioned earlier. We got a tight one going on in, uh, well, two of them actually. Bucks, Nets. Nets are up 70 to 63 right now on the visiting Bucks with about seven and a half to play in the third. Kyrie uh, not having a great game so far, but just hit another shot, so he's picking it up a little bit. Uh, he's sitting at 12 points right now. Uh, Kevin Durant, even slower night. He's got just nine right now. He had a good first meantime. quarter and then cooled off. Yeah. Giannis doing Giannis things. He's got 25. Middleton has 14. So that one is pretty tight. We've also got a tight uh, tight game going on. 76ers, Pistons. Um, also, the Bulls hanging in there with the Clippers. Uh, those are both in the in the second and third quarter. So uh, good NBA action tonight as we continue to see how this East is going to shake out. It is as tight as can be. Uh, Courtney, before we get to the uh, the biggest L's people have taken, and I'm certainly going to ask you about yours, we got any predictions on the Women's Final Four starting tomorrow? We talked to Andrea Carter mm-hmm. yesterday, uh, Louisville, South Carolina, UConn, Stanford. What do you think is going to happen? I think that South Carolina will roll tomorrow. I really mm. do. They've been my favorite this entire tournament. And I know that's probably a cliche answer because they were – probably the overwhelming favorite going into this but they've got the player of the year on their squad Louisville's a really good team they're fun to watch um but I've got Louisville I've got South Carolina over Louisville and I actually have Stanford even though it's not an upset it feels like it is because of Connecticut and their history but Connecticut the underdog in the game tomorrow I have the national championship game in Minneapolis, taking place between South Carolina and Stanford. Wow. Gosh, I am so torn on these. I agree with you. I agree with you on South Carolina. They defensively have been so excellent. You got to hope their offense shows up. You got to hope Boston isn't out there um, without enough support from everybody else because they've just been so good defensively. Uh, but the same goes for Louisville. If they can find consistent offense beyond Van Lith and they can get to South Carolina, um, they've got a good shot in that. I think I, I've got South Carolina, though. I am so torn on Stanford-UConn. This is a UConn team that, like you mentioned earlier, they have had so many different lineup changes. It, it just seems like it's coming together at the right time. They did have to go through a double overtime thriller to get here. Are they going to be tired, particularly Paige Beckers, who's not 100%? And you've got a Stanford team that's looked dominant. But Stanford hasn't been completely without its flaws. And mm-hmm. there's certainly an opportunity for UConn to take advantage. We know Gino knows how to coach. So uh, so does Tara Vanderveer, uh, winningest ever. So I'm, I'm super pumped, super pumped for both of those. Uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We mentioned on the show earlier that – Yesterday, the Nats took an L to the Cardinals. 29 runs for St. Louis. It was an exhibition, but still, 29 runs is ugly, and we, we, we thought it was worthy of finding out some of the ugliest Ls that you've taken, and you guys did not disappoint. Here's just a couple of them. Uh, Laura was practicing with the seniors for the first time in volleyball as a freshman. She did not even get to rotate 
before she got a spike straight to the nose and hit the floor. Oof. Especially as a freshman, that's brutal. I mean, that reminds me of an L I took when I accidentally broke my teammate's nose in practice in basketball when I pulled down a rebound and turned directly into her face. I was more of an L for her, but I felt really bad about it for a really long time. So I'm counting it as an L on my mark as well. Um, this person's team in high school, varsity basketball, scored one basket in the half. That is a massive L. Uh, lost 50 to nothing in a high school football league championship. How do you make the championship and then lose 50 to nothing? They, they claim the other team had cleats. Uh, and the and the field was full of ice and they didn't. But still, that's not a random terrible. matchup. That's a championship. You somehow made it there and lost 50 to nothing. Um, this one was just sad. Worked at an inner city school as a teacher 11 years ago. We helped turn around an underachieving school. Had some wild stories of student behavior. Wrote a comedy draft for a series. Never did anything with it. And now Abbott Elementary. <laughs> that hurts, Courtney. That hurts. Oh, man. Poor timing. Poor timing. Uh, Jeff Norman, 90, lost a softball game 35-3, to missed the slaughter rule by one run, and then gave up another 23 runs in the last two innings. Isn't there a mercy <laughs> rule for any of these there people? There should be. There should be. Somebody said their, their high school basketball team was so bad that they literally made a documentary about how many losses <laughs> they took in a row and oh, sent me the cover of the documentary VHS. That is an impressive L. Um this person lost to their teachers in the Turkey Bowl in eighth grade, 55 to seven. That's an L to your teachers. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at seven Eastern on ESPN radio and on the ESPN app.